0: Okay, this morning we talked about our sin and God's judgment, how those two realities result in what I call the squeeze. And we also saw how God doesn't leave us there. He sent Jesus to meet us in our sin, to take it upon himself and to give us his righteousness in return. But I think that leaves us with a question. By what mechanism are we rescued by Jesus? In other words, how do we get connected to all of that powerful grace and mercy in him? How do we sort of hook into his justifying life and death? It's like we need a jumper cable or we need a a tow line or maybe even better. We'll talk about this extensively, a pipeline that connects us to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to use the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18 to do it. This is often called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So it's Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Let's hear God's word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray um, that it would sink deep into our hearts tonight, that we would know you more, that we would be drawn to you more that we would know your gospel more and apply it in our lives better. We pray that you would do all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, if we're going to look at this parable to understand justification, then it might help to take just a couple minutes to talk about what a parable is. <clears throat> Jesus told lots of them, right? The best short definition I know is actually the title of a very good book about parables. It's just three words. Stories with intent. Stories with intent. That's what a parable is. But if if that is what a parable is, then, then what sort of intent did Jesus have in telling them? Greg Lanier answers that question this way. He says, Like the prophets of old, Jesus used parables to reveal the mystery of the kingdom, to stimulate reflection on sin, to call people to repentance. And to produce the opposite among those hardened against him. That last part is very interesting and very true. Parables in scripture often seem to divide hearers. Sometimes they they sort of appear to take a veil off. And sometimes they appear to put a veil on. And that's why they they are more than just illustrations. There's something different. And some people, by the way, think that parables are generally like simple and that they're, they're just meant to make like one particular point. I think that is true sometimes, not always. I think actually more often a parable has some complexities to it, that it's, it's meant to get you thinking. And so for that reason, I like to say, as of right now, because I've never said this before, that parables are not like trick or treating they're like Airbnbs, okay? Here's what I mean by that. In trick-or-treating, Jerry Seinfeld has told us, if you know this part of his uh, stand-up routine, in trick-or-treating, you knock, you get the candy, and you keep it moving, right? Like, like just put it in the bag. i got to go. i got to get to the next house, right? Don't read a parable like that, okay? Don't read it once and say, point taken, I, I get it, and, and move on. Instead, we need to treat a parable sort of like an Airbnb. In other words, you are meant to come into it and sit down for a while and look around and live there for a bit. A parable is like an invitation from Jesus to see things as he sees them, to live in the world that he made with your, with your eyes open. Now, this parable, um, like a few others, maybe you can think of, presents two contrasting characters. We've got a Pharisee and a tax collector, and it ends with Jesus saying this. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. In other words, uh, one of these men connects with Jesus and is saved by that connection, and the other does not. And so it seems pretty important to me that we would understand the the difference between the two. And so that's why we just have three pretty simple points here. We're going to talk about the Pharisee, the tax collector, and the difference. Okay, Pharisee, tax collector, and the difference. Okay, a little preface here. Um, It's it's always important to take note of who Jesus is telling a, a parable to. And it's not always clear, but this time it is. Verse 9 says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he's talking about self-righteous people. And the first person that we meet is is just that type of person. It's the Pharisee. And so that's our first section here. Verse 10. These two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like... Other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get tithes of all that I get. Okay, what is happening here? Well, I am so thankful that we now have a term for this. Uh, we did not have this when I was a kid. This is called a humble brag, right? You know what a humble brag is, I'm sure, but. Just for kicks, I want to read you a few of my favorite humble brags collated from the internet, mostly from Twitter. You ready? Having the number one video on YouTube is more hassle than it's worth. <laughs> OMG, I hate watching <laughs> hashtag Top Chef when I'm on it. That's tough. Yeah. I love how short and punchy this one is. <laughs> Red carpet and sweaty. <laughs> Uh, Big blister on my little toe from standing around at this royal wedding. This one is from a pastor, shameful, probably not in our little world. I'm truly humbled that you follow my tweets. I pray that they enrich your life and strengthen your ministry. God bless all 200,000 of you. (laughs) And then finally, this is a bonus, we should really move on. But I, I think this is a work of art. Like we could hang this thread in a museum. I hate my Lambo. Police are always pulling me over just because it's a Lambo. So they always think I'm speeding. But I'm not. Then they let me go. I love that twist at the end. Then they let me go. That it's it's like a, a mini humble brag inside of the bigger humble brag. It's like Russian dolls of humble brag. So uh, this is sort of the the life philosophy of the Pharisee. And also we should remember to those whom Jesus is talking to, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And those two things always go together, don't they? That if if you think that you're good, if you think you've got it together, then people who are not like you are by uh, uh, are necessarily not good and do not have it together. So you treat them with contempt. Assuming you are righteous gives you a sort of like divided eye. And and where there are good people and there are bad people and the good ones are like you. And that's one of the things that Jesus is getting at in this parable. But we can really go further. So uh, what sort of person is this Pharisee? Well, if you've read some in the Gospels or maybe you've heard, you know that Jesus takes a lot of shots at Pharisees. And we we have taken a few ourselves in the last few minutes. But I I really doubt that that is how most people thought of Pharisees. Because in parables, Jesus sometimes uses a sort of stylized, kind of caricatured version of of people. But I I think that real Pharisees, um, they did not drive Lambos, for one. But nor did they come across as like just kind of scowling religious do-gooders and like really puritanical, detailed type of people. I think they came across as very devoted people. So instead, uh, I think we can think of it this way. This man, this Pharisee, is is well-kempt. He is put together. You've seen him do many kind and selfless things around church or around campus. He is solid. He's dependable. He's devout. If you're a guy... You, you want him to be your friend, you're kind of impressed by him. You want to be more like him. If you're a girl, you might want to miss your boyfriend or at least wish your dad was more like him. And yet something is missing that becomes even more clear in the contrast when Jesus turns the spotlight on the other man. And this is our second part here, the tax collector. So verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, what sort of person is this second man? Maybe you've seen him around as well. He has a poor reputation. He looks awkward and out of place at a campus ministry or a church. He's a tax collector. And like the honey badger, he just kind of takes what he wants. Unlike the Pharisee, at least in the Pharisee's eyes. He is an extortioner. He is unjust. He may be an actual adulterer, but either way, he sort of culturally, he has cheated on um, Israel as a, a Roman collaborator. Far from fasting, he indulges in all of the food that he wants because he can afford it. And far from tithing, he has money to burn because he takes it from the people of God. See, Jesus is playing on our tendency that we talked about earlier of dividing people into good and bad categories and putting ourselves, of course, in the good category. He's playing on our tendency to set up a list of rules that make people right or righteous in our eyes. And Jesus is hard on the Pharisees in the Gospels. That is very true. He often calls them uh, hypocrites He argues with them, but consider this in Matthew 18. He says the last stage of church discipline is to be treated as a pagan or a tax collector. In Matthew 5, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't the tax collectors doing that? And in more than one place in scripture, we hear the phrase um, sinners and tax collectors. They're not a, a separate category of sinners. These tax collectors, they are like the arch category of sinners. And so now is probably a good time to ask yourself in your mind, what is the arch category of sinner? Whatever it is, put that person in this story as a tax collector. He is the person that, you know, the type of person that if you saw them this weekend, you would say, what is she doing here? Why is he here? So the tax collector is out of place and he's doing something very surprising. He's standing far off in the shadows. He's desperate to not be seen as he pours out his heart before the Lord, as he beats his breast and says a simple prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, I would submit, by the way, that if you are here this weekend and you have never put your faith in Jesus, that this is a very good place to start. This prayer, in fact, that's actually where everyone starts. All Christians throughout time have said essentially this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so he's ashamed of his sins. He's despairing of himself. And we, I think, kind of avoid that feeling, right? We avoid shame and despair. We avoid it with achievement or sports or fun or relationships or substances We're name dropping people from our high schools that we know. (laughs) This man embraces it. okay, but he doesn't wallow in it. He takes it to God. And so this is one of really the clearest and most poignant pictures of repentance that we get in the whole Bible. Probably right up there with Psalm 51. But it is not mere self-loathing. This is a different type of shame and guilt. And it really doesn't carry any of the marks of like depression. Ed Welch says the misery of depression is in its apathy. But confession is not apathy. Confession is active. It's movement. It's a sign of life. And so this really is not like a store-bought self-loathing. It's very real, very genuine, 24 karat humility. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the difference. That's the third point here. Humility is a weird thing, right? It's a sort of indirect quality. The minute that you talk about it, you stop being humble. It's sort of self-defeating in that way because really, uh, really humble people do not talk about being humble. And so to me, humility is a little bit like nicknames, okay? You cannot give yourself a nickname. Have you ever seen the Seinfeld episode where George tries to, tries to nickname himself T-Bone? It doesn't work out. You cannot declare yourself humble any more than you can declare your own nickname. And that is the Pharisee's problem. He's trying to declare himself humble. He's like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. Right? You can't just say it. So look at his prayer. Look carefully. William Hendrickson points this out. He says, outwardly he addresses God, but inwardly and actually... The man is talking about himself to himself. He says God wants and he says, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That sounds very close to God. I thank you that I have a Lambo and not a Corolla. You ever do that? You ever do the I, I, I prayer? I know I do. These conversations with yourself, telling yourself things that you deserve, ways that you are Right. Maybe even, you know, we mentioned this morning ways that you would defend yourself if somebody, if somebody came and challenged you. Or you might bring God into the prayer. Oh, God, I'm so humbled by all the ways that you have blessed me. I never would have thought that I would be this successful. Or we can make it sound really good. God, I am so thankful that you chose me. I'm so thankful that I know and I understand that your grace is mine. So many don't understand. Okay. Those are caricature. Most of you would not say anything exactly like that, but these are subtle ways to trust your own righteousness, very subtle ways to make yourself the star of your own life. But notice what the Pharisee does not say. He doesn't say, God, I thank you that I am growing more kind and more loving and more patient I thank you that I love your word more and that your mercy is overwhelming to me. It's not what he says. Everything that the Pharisee names has an outward element to it. It's all the things that, that can be seen. And at least one of those things, fasting twice a week, isn't even required by God. Theologian Francis Schaeffer said, he said, we don't live by either keeping a list or ignoring a list. We live by moving from an outward situation to an inward one. He says, I can take lists that men make and I can seem to keep them, but to do this, my heart does not have to be bowed. The tax collector is the one that bows his heart. He beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His prayer has no outward element to it. Right. It cannot be seen. There is no social payoff. There are no points on his resume, but it is the most basic cry of the Christian heart. It's the sound of the new birth. It's it's a picture of a child of God being delivered from dark to light. It's it's the posture of repentance and faith that leads to justification. So now is a good time to ask yourself if you have that disposition you have that that heart disposition, not that we all have like dramatic conversion moments. This kind of appears to be some of us don't really remember a time when we didn't trust the Lord, right? We call that the the sunrise conversion instead of the light switch. Um, It turns out, though, that the pipeline that connects us to Jesus is actually this type of humility leading to this type of repentance and faith. Whereas shorthand, really, we can just say faith because faith includes repentance. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And faith also presupposes humility. Faith is coming to the end of yourself. It's coming to the end of all of the ways that you try to make it in this world without Jesus. It's a quiet desperation. It's, it's knowing that you could never measure up to God's standards and throwing yourself. On Jesus for mercy. Faith really does not ever say. I think I'll try this. Faith says I have to have this. If I don't have it. I will die. If I don't have Jesus. I will die. And when you do that. When you receive and rest in Jesus Christ. The, the pipeline gets laid. Between your heart. Your soul. Your record. And connects at the other end. To Jesus Christ and to all of his benefits. We're saved by faith alone, but it's, it's Jesus' perfect life, perfect death that, that does the work. And if you think about it, a, a pipe, think about a pipe for a second. A pipe is not really the most important part of the system, right? Uh, it's just kind of the means of flow. Pipes are not really expensive, a lot of times it doesn't even really matter what they're made of. Um, it, what matters is what's flowing through it, water, oil, whatever. But we also have pipes that take, okay? I know this because my, in my old house in Arkansas, we had tree roots that would get into the septic pipe, and the sewage would back up into our house. That is gross. I know. Welcome to homeowning. It's tough. In the same way, Jesus offers us a a two-way pipe. The the sewage of our sin and brokenness and condemnation is, is going out from us to him on the cross. And then his perfect righteousness, his perfect standing before God is flowing the other way from him into us. Faith is that mechanism. It is that pipe. It's the way that we are saved. So one other analogy here. My friend Les Newsom says, um, he says, we can say that faith is like a windshield. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Many of us turn into sort of chemists when when we look at our own faith. and, And we're like, what's the ratio here? What do we we got? Like, you know, what is there? um, What are the strength levels? What is 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 there pride or hubris mixed up in here? And what percentage is it mixed in? If it is, we've got the white coat on and we're taking samples and we're analyzing. We're essentially asking, do I believe enough? And there is some truth in examining Ourselves, But the tax collector, the one who goes down to his house justified, made right, is in no such lab. He is using faith like a windshield to look through to Jesus. He knows, somebody said this, I cannot remember who it was, that he is, he knows two things. That he is a great sinner, but that Jesus is a great savior. And so we are saved by grace. We talked about this morning through faith. We're saying tonight, but the emphasis in the the through faith is the the through part, because if you drive around looking at your windshield, then please don't do it close to me because you're going to crash. A windshield is not made to be looked at. It's made to be looked through. And so we have to look through to Jesus, to the one who is seated on the throne, who has all of the power, all of the benefits, all of what we need to flow down to us. Tim Keller said, strong faith in a weak object is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong object. Does that make sense? Some people want to say, well, it's, it's, just, it's just faith. You just need more of it. Stronger faith. But it's not really clear on what it's in. We're saying the opposite, essentially. We're saying the important part is what's on the other end. And so whether your pipeline is big or small or thin or thick or strong or weak, what matters ultimately is the Savior on the other end. The one who is ready to show you grace, ready to remove your sin from you and give you his righteousness in return. Let me pray for us.